0: ...will come from the Old Testament, but not Exodus. So if you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32, I'm going to read the first uh, 15 verses with you, but we are going to make a, uh, a flyover of most of this chapter. So Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah chapter 32, And I'll be reading the first 15 verses. Jeremiah is a long book, second longest book in the Bible. And Jeremiah is a dark book. Jeremiah was not called the weeping prophet without reason. So let's go to God's Word, Jeremiah 32. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. And though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anathoth from Hananamal, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deeds of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of the purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard." I charge Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land so ends the reading of god's word father grant us ears to hear this morning eyes to see ourselves and our own relationship to this passage help us to see the glories of christ this morning as we hear from your word i I just want to share a couple notes with you on anathoth they're not in my sermon but i think they're important anathoth is in the land of benjamin Anathoth is a town where many of the Levite priests lived who served the temple in Jerusalem. It's about three miles from Jerusalem. Anathoth is Jeremiah's hometown. It's where he's born. Jeremiah was of the priestly lineage. The people at Anathoth sought to kill Jeremiah at one time. The people at Anathoth, his hometown. Interestingly, following the exile, when the people come back and they start to rebuild the temple and reclaim Jerusalem and they recommit to the covenant, one of the men present who witnessed that name just happens to be Anathoth. The word or the name Anathoth means a place of echoes or a place where prayers are answered. So keep that in mind as we go. They will come if you build it. Anybody heard that line before? It's from the movie The Field of Dreams where Ray Kinsella hears a voice that tells him to build a baseball park. In his Iowa prairie cornfield, where I grew up, incidentally, *Field of Dreams* is a heartwarming fantasy about a far- a farmer who hears a mysterious voice telling him, "If you build it, he will come." And fascinated by the message, Ray, played by Kevin Costner in the movie, plows this cornfield under, and he builds this baseball diamond. And soon, the ghost of legendary baseball players including the famous shoeless Joe Jackson appear to play on the field. Well this movie explores in a way themes of redemption, second chances, and something about the power of belief. On the other hand, the dream is just the ghost of famous baseball players from the past playing again in the moonlight It was, after all, just a dream, just another Hollywood production. The voice Jeremiah heard was not a dream. It was the Lord talking about a different field. If you buy it, they will return. But the field in question is an actual field, and the picture of its future had nothing to do with ghost returning. Instead, it was about generations of people sent away into exile, coming back. Not the ghost of a great past, but the truth of a sure future. You see, Jeremiah had been prophesying for many, many years to a culture, to a nation that was in transition, very much like our modern day, from modernity to postmodernity, from a Christian world to a post-Christian world. So Jeremiah is someplace we can learn a a, a lot from. Jeremiah addresses things like uncertainty and large-scale cultural and political change. The Word of God came then just like it does today, to rebuke, to console, to affirm such constants as God's anger against sin and his promise of everlasting love when people wonder what does it mean to know god they can find answers in jeremiah but they're not going to find religious clichés like god helps those who help themselves or let go and let god those are religious clichés they're not biblical facts No, the book of Jeremiah contains some really hard truth. See, the people of Judah have turned their face away from God and shown Him their back. They violated the covenant in every way imaginable. All of their sin is laid bare before them throughout the book of Jeremiah over a period of 40 years. And now, as Jeremiah sits in the presence of the palace guard locked up judgment is knocking at the door knocking at the gates of Jerusalem exactly what god had promised would happen if they did not repent and jeremiah is sent to remind them of their sinfulness and urge them to repent return to the god who had brought them out of egypt the god who had given them so much the god who has kept Every single promise he ever made to them. And if they didn't repent and they didn't turn back, there was one more promise to be kept. And that promise was the curse of the covenant. Destruction. Exile. The temple destroyed. God's presence gone. Now, this message didn't come easy to the people. Jeremiah faced a lot of opposition. He was physically, verbally abused, imprisoned, put in stocks, thrown into a cistern one time, viewed as a traitor, a troublemaker, someone who was constantly undermining the people's morale. And unlike the field of dreams, Jeremiah was not in a beautiful place now. Let's let the camera Slowly zoom in on Jeremiah from above. As the kingdom of Judah comes into view, there's smoke and a glow is visible. And as the camera zooms a little closer, we see the glow of several fires burning. Some of the smaller towns, perhaps like Anathoth, are on fire. Farmland, wineries, olive groves, all covered in smoke. And as we get a little closer, we'll see Babylon's troops surrounding the city of Jerusalem, siege towers smashing into the walls. And we get a little closer, we see the palace built by Solomon, remodeled a little bit by Jehoiakim, inside armed troops living in the military quarters, And as we zoom in a little bit closer on the ground, we find Jeremiah, who the king has arrested, a political prisoner because of his faithfulness in proclaiming God's word to the stiff-necked people. Jeremiah might have been locked up, but the word and the will of God was not. And to the covenant people of God, Jeremiah seemed very out of step with the mood of the culture. Mocked when he preached doom in the thriving society, and mocked when he preached hope to a dying society. God is looking at a very different future. God's word would be delivered through a strange exercise of this purchase of land, according to an ancient tradition that by all accounts must have seemed pretty absurd at the time when it happened. Now, this is the earliest mention in Jeremiah that we have of Jeremiah and the king coming face to face. Incidentally, you know how Zedekiah became the king. He was appointed the king by Nebuchadnezzar. So... The king, um, he's a political appointee by the man who's soon to destroy the city. And Jeremiah repeatedly told him, the city is doomed, and so are you. Why, is all Zedekiah could say, why? The Babylons have put me here. I'm doing everything they want. Why are you prophesying all this doom and gloom? as if Jeremiah hadn't been telling them for 40 years. Sometimes asking why is okay, and it's even appropriate. But here, in Zedekiah's case, it's inexcusable. It's pathetic. He knew exactly why. He knew why Jeremiah was was prophesying what he did. But he resisted. It's easy for us to look back and say, why would he resist? How could he resist? Couldn't he see what was going on? Pretty sure a lot of people ask those same questions then. But that's what the text tells us. And it says that God instructed Jeremiah to buy this plot of land from a family member, a plot that was near Anathoth, Jeremiah's boyhood home. And the cousin, Hanamel, shows up to visit Jeremiah in prison. What a coincidence. Everybody in prison likes to get visitors, and now here's this long-lost cousin shows up. He's the cousin everyone has. He's the one that everyone avoids at the family reunions. He's the one that's always got a deal, a great investment opportunity for you. Hasn't been seen or heard from in years, but he slaps everyone on the back when he meets him, just like it was yesterday when they talked last. Listen, if I got a sweetheart deal for you, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And then to seal the deal, he adds the guilt of the Kinsman Redeemer Clause. Buy my field at Anathoth. It's your right. It's your duty to buy it the Bible doesn't say why Hanamel gave Jeremiah the option to buy it it just tells us that he does and maybe he's trying to make a fast buck before the Babylonians took over maybe he's in debt needed money to buy the food in any case he calls upon the kinsman redeemer clause you owe it to me you have to do this and he was right promised land was a sacred inheritance The property is not to leave the family. God did not want the people going outside of Israel, outside of the bloodline when they needed help. The family, the kin, is where they were to go. That's why Boaz is commended in the book of Ruth for exercising it when a near kinsman redeemer declined to do so. But let's think about this for a minute. The invading armies are coming from the north, (laughs) and (laughs) Anathoth is north of Israel. We know from the text the troops are already at the gates of Israel, surrounding the walls. So what does that say about this little town? What do you suppose happened there as the invading troops came through? They didn't ride through and wave. They didn't ride through and wave. So, this field that is to be sold to Jeremiah has already been trampled over, most likely. It may even be occupied by Babylonians right now. Jeremiah knows that destruction is coming to the city judgment, bad judgment, severe judgment. And his cousin wants him to buy a field. Or be more accurate God wants him to buy the field you know some of the promises in the Bible won't come true for a long long time maybe even after we've departed this earth sometimes those promises stretch our faith do we have the faith to continue to follow those promises That we may never see, like Abraham. Day after day, Christians choose the same things. They do strange things. We do. Because we believe what God says. Christians still get married today. When there's a world out there that says, Why would you get married? You don't have to get married, it's just a piece of paper. And besides, Nobody stays together forever anymore. Don't worry with that marriage nonsense. But as Christians, we get married because that's what God teaches us to do. And we believe that God keeps his promises. And missionaries, Michael and Cindy, they go to faraway places, leave behind all the good things about being an American. Why in the world would someone do that? As promised in Matthew 28, God calls them to spread the word to every corner of the world. And they go because they believe this is what God has instructed them to do. Some Christians feed poor people or teach people who don't know don't know much. Others make friends with people of different races, income levels. Another group gives up one, maybe two nights a week. To go sit with brothers and sisters in a Bible study and to pray. Why, we even find people who gather together in a small country church, about 30 or 40 of them, every Sunday. To fellowship with one another, to worship God, and to be fed by His Word. For people who are not Christians, this might all seem a little bit strange. But the church of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, remains the most powerful countercultural force in the world. Yeah, Christians, we do strange things, and there's one good reason, because we believe what God says. We believe what God says about family, about evangelism, about kindness to one another, about charity, And we do what he says because we believe. Still, sometimes we have doubts. (laughs) We have doubts not because we don't believe. That's a popular thing to say. Well, you don't have enough faith. That's just unbelief. No, we struggle because we do believe God. We do believe what he says. But sometimes the situation just looks so bad leak, so impossible, and we start looking inside ourselves, and we start saying, there's just no way this can work out. Yeah, 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 I know God did this and God did that, but this, he can't fix. This is too bad. Jeremiah himself had questions for God. Let me read again the last verse of our passage. Verse 15, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Jeremiah must have said to himself, Who will buy this land? Who will buy these burned down homes? Is Nebuchadnezzar going to sell our property back to us after he sacks the city? God, he's about to destroy the city. And here's another thing. He's going to do it because you're sending him to. Would you have questions? Now, what follows is Jeremiah's prayer. This section of Jeremiah is known as the book of comfort, and it's kind of Jeremiah's prayer journal. So I'm going to read to you Um. Starting in verse 16. It's Jeremiah's prayer. It's a prayer for the bewildered. And Bible scholar Derek Kidner says it's a fine example of the way we should pray in a desperate situation. Concentrating first on the creative power, the perfect fidelity and justice of God. Remembering next his redemptive acts to which the Christian can now add the greatest of them all, Christ on the cross. And then with this background laying before God, our guilt, the guilt of the past, the hard facts of the present, and then in Jeremiah's case, the riddle of what is the future going to hold. And Jeremiah says, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah. I prayed to the Lord saying oh Lord God it is you who have made the heavens and earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you you show steadfast love to thousands but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them Oh great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts great in counsel and mighty indeed whose eyes are open To all the ways of the children of man rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds you have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind have made a name for yourself as at this day you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders with a strong hand an outstretched arm and with great terror And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and they took possession, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. (coughs) Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. What you have spoke has come to pass, and behold, behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Philip Riken breaks Jeremiah's prayer down into a few parts. You notice the first part, Jeremiah's first words, Ah, He does that several times in his prayers. He's beginning his prayer with a cry, a distress from his soul. Four of his prayers begin that way. And whenever he had a crisis, whenever he didn't know what the Lord wanted him to do, he was worried about the future or he's being attacked by his enemies, his soul cried out to the Lord. Thus he experienced the truth of this beautiful promise that we find in the New Testament the Spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the Saints in accordance with God's will of course you recognize that from Romans chapter 8 so, I would say it's appropriate sometimes to begin your prayers with a groan when the only thing that you can get out is a groan. Father, I don't have the words that I need to say. But God knows. He knows what you need, He knows what you mean. And the Holy Spirit articulates the cries of our souls and turns frustration into intercession. And you'll notice Jeremiah praises God for his mighty acts in his prayer. And he starts with the act of creation. The Lord God made everything there is. He made the heavens and the earth. The moon, the stars, the planets, all the birds, the bugs, and the beast. Without God, nothing had been made that was made. And then Jeremiah goes on to talk about redemption. He gives a short history lesson about how God brought the people out of Egypt into this promised land. You gave them this land you had sworn to give their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God did this. The people didn't do it. Pharaoh didn't do it. God did it. And Jeremiah worships God for his wonderful attributes. He doesn't praise him simply for what he does, but also for who he is. Go back and look at that prayer again sometime. He talks about God's omnipotence. Nothing is too hard for you. He worships God for his covenant love. You show love to thousands. Today, that would be thousands upon millions showered with the love of God in Christ around the world. Jeremiah echoes the second commandment when he praises God for his justice. You show love to thousands, but you bring punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children. See, in this postmodern, post-Christian world, people don't like to talk about God's justice. As if somehow it's wrong for God to punish sin. You and I know it's not wrong. It's right. It's required. It's what makes God just. So Jeremiah praises him for that, for maintaining his honor and his holiness. I just, I wonder how often our prayers are like that. Jeremiah really never even asked for anything. He does lay out. His concern, his puzzlement, this land? You want me to buy this land in spite of this? The final part, the little bitty ending of his prayer was about his need. I hope you see that. He spent more time praising God than he did talking about his problems. And herein lies the power of prayer. Did God need Jeremiah to tell him how wonderful he was? God didn't change his mind. He didn't stop the coming judgment. He did not relent in his purpose. But he did listen as Jeremiah poured out his heart. As Jeremiah talked about what God had done for his people, did God need Jeremiah to remind him that he was almighty, all powerful, that he was just and merciful? No. Perhaps Jeremiah needed to be reminded. He needed his soul needed to be reminded of just who God is. And what He's done, that's the power of prayer for us. It serves as a reminder to us of who God is, what He's done for us, and that He is sovereign, and that things will work out according to His will. Not always according to the way we think they should. And that's where we struggle. But God's ways are not like our ways, His thoughts are higher than ours. You know, it's really when we see these things that seem to be impossible in front of us, when we offer these prayers. They really only make sense to us in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection. That, when we put those things side by side, that's when we can begin to fathom the depth, the power of prayer, the power of trusting God. For at the cross, indeed the wrath of God was exercised and born by God's own self in the person of his son, through the violent wickedness of human enemies and soldiers. Still, the love of God simultaneously poured out in redemptive triumph, and through the resurrection, God would bring about not merely a restoration of agriculture in one ancient land, but the first fruits of an entire new creation And I want you to hear God's response to Jeremiah's prayer. In verse 26, beginning in 26, he continues to tell Jeremiah why judgment's coming and what it's going to look like. The children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. So God continues to remind them of the wickedness of the nation, how they continually take God for granted, and now they're going to face judgment for their action, just as he had promised their forefathers years ago in the days of Moses. Judgment will be sure, and it will be severe, but God. Verse 37, "...behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them." I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That's the new covenant he's talking about, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their heart that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. That's the word of God about his people, about this ancient people, Israel. It's about you and it's about me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will do it with all my heart and soul. No doubt some believed it was unthinkable that God would destroy his own city and the temple. Surely that would be too hard for God to even consider. But he could, and he would, and it was only a matter of weeks now as Jeremiah sat praying in the guard's courtyard. Many more would be reading these words later in exile in Babylon with memories of the fires that finally consumed Jerusalem. For some of them, it must have seemed unthinkable that God could restore their fortunes that the future could include a return of the people, a rebuilding of the city and the temple. Surely God's not going to do that. The God who rewards each person according to their conduct and their their deeds, did not their deeds deserve all that had happened to them? How could God possibly take us back? But God is not bound by possibilities That come from the past. Nothing is too hard for him, including creating a new future generated from his sovereign and redemptive will. The people of Judah will have endured war. They will have had all their hopes and dreams cut off, their families splintered, suffering and travail all around them, living in a shattered world. And now by the power of the Word, God empowers these broken and shipwrecked people to imagine a future where no future seemed possible. You see, the book of Comfort sees all expressions of hope as grounded in God's mercy, His love, His sovereignty, and His grace. God's grace is not the result of human virtue, ingenuity, grit, imagination, It doesn't derive from success, military might, technological power, or even the elimination of our own scars and memories of loss. It is God's gift to people at their breaking point. It is the promise of life when no life should be expected. The city that God would rebuild was the city that that God had destroyed and the people would return to celebrate God's salvation they would be the descendants of those who went into exile and this too finds its ultimate fulfillment in the cross for was the Jesus was the risen Jesus the same as the crucified Jesus yes and no God raised Jesus bodily from the tomb His disciples recognized him. His body bore the marks of what had been done to him. Yet there was a newness, a transcendent dimension to his new life. It was assuredly not less than physical. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have, but certainly more than physical. The risen Christ was the first fruits of the new creation. The cross and the resurrection confounded the limits of what people thought might be possible. It was surely unthinkable, wasn't it, Peter, that God's Messiah would die on a cross? But he did. It was surely unthinkable, wasn't it, Sadducees and Sanhedrin, that God could raise him from the dead? But he did. And so the wrath and judgment of God visited on Jerusalem and the grace and redemption of God that raised people to new life again find their ultimate expression, the ultimate saving power at the cross of Christ. Take some time this week, even this afternoon. Read Revelations chapters 21 and 22. It won't take you long. And then immediately come back and read Jeremiah 32. And having done so, I hope you, like Peter, are awed. Or like the psalmist, and you say, oh, this is marvelous in my eyes. So as we sit with Jeremiah, imprisoned in a world and in a culture that hates us, that wants us to go away, let us hear, as he did, the threatening noise of the enemy at the gate, but let us also see with eyes of faith the vision of the ultimate future, beyond even the final judgment, the vision of an everlasting covenant of people enjoying the pure, undiluted goodness and grace of God, a people pardoned, purified, planted by God. It's not a dream. It's not an imaginary group of people gathering together again from the past to play baseball. It's a future promised by God, the Father of our Lord Christ. A promise from the God who has never broken one promise. That is our future. That is ours to contemplate now by faith. That is the substance of things hoped for, for the evidence of things unseen. That's the future field, the future real estate to which God holds the title and the deeds. We serve the God who will rejoice in doing us good, who pledges to do it with all of his heart and soul. Almighty God, we give thanks to you for your faithfulness, for the redemption that is ours through Christ, for the gift of the Spirit to guide us, for the gift of your word to show us who you truly are. Take these words and bind them to our hearts that they may change us more into the image of Christ, that we might see a little more clearly day by day and by your grace. Amen.